0: You're listening to audio from the Branch Church, Milledgeville. If you would like to learn more about our church, what we do, or who we are, please visit tbcmilledgeville.com. If you're located in the central Georgia area, please consider joining us for worship at 730 North Wayne Street in Milledgeville, Georgia, on Sundays with fellowship beginning at 10 a.m. and worship kicking off at 1030. This twist Pastor Bailey. Um, Pastor Brian is out uh, with COVID um, along with mom. So some of you guys know that. Thank you for keeping them in your prayers. feels like everybody's kind of getting sick. Um, I know some sniffles getting fended off left and right. So I'm um, praying for you guys as well and grateful to see all of you here this morning, um, church family. So if you would jump to John 19 as we continue on here. Uh, John 19. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning. Um, You see the title of our message here this morning, No King But Christ. No King But Christ. To set some context up for us here this morning, we are going to see the rest of Jesus' trial before Pilate. um, And we'll next week see Christ's crucifixion. Again, we'll see the rest of his trial next week, see his crucifixion. Um, But something I want to remind us and and start off with this morning, you'll see in your bullets in there, is a good reminder for us as we see the suffering of our Savior. And as we maybe throughout this morning recount our shared sufferings with Christ, um, our simple statement here, in that the sufferings of this life are shadows that reveal the light of eternity beyond what can be seen or felt. This morning, we will read of Christ's beating, of his continued wrongful conviction, and we will see the Savior's suffering. And we would be remiss if we did not remember all throughout the text this morning that yes, first and foremost, Christ was faithful in the four stages of bearing his cross because he loved the Father, but in that he also loved you, his children. We can't just read of our Savior's death or the stages that led up to his death and be detached from the understanding that as blood was dripping down his face, as his flesh was torn from his back, and as he was mocked in front of his people, that it was his true people he was suffering for, and it was for his Father that he loved far more than the world that was denying him. This is not just a historical account in our text this morning. We will see the cornerstone of our church. We will see the acting out of perfect faith. We will see a worldly personification of what we war against and those who hate the Lord. And we will ultimately be brought to humility and understanding that we were purchased at the highest price, our Savior's life. So yes, we will see a trial. And yes, we We will see a false conviction. And yes, we will see all these things that point to the historical events of Christ's crucifixion and those leading up to it. But we cannot mistake the fact that we are seeing God's will executed and a people purchase of whom we are a part of. This is our lineage. This is our ancestry. This is the ground on which we stand today. When you go to your classes and go to your jobs, it is not just your family or your church that you represent, but it is the king that we see here crowned with thorns. It is not just the lineage of your parents or grandparents that you carry on with you, but it is that of old saints in these times. It's the church forevermore. This is what we are a part of, and that is so vital for us to catch and understand, especially where we are in Milledgeville. We can fall so prone to thinking of ourselves too highly and thinking that we're in this bubble and nobody else is pressing on and perhaps we're alone in theology or commitment or you name it. But the fact of the matter is that we as children of God are never alone in our aim as Christ goes with us and He has gone before us and He will come after us. And we are never alone as we look to the faithful examples of brothers and sisters and Scripture And we are not alone as we look to Christ and His work and God's condemnation on those who hate Him. So my general encouragement with that this morning is to, if you can, try to capture the grandeur of what is happening in the text and see how it ripples all the way to today. And see how Christ's suffering sets the model for us and our suffering. And also how Christ's suffering bars us from ever suffering to such an extent. And see even more so how his approach to death actually sets the stage for our life. The majesty of God on display through the suffering of the Son. With me? Okay. Join me in prayer if you would as we begin through the rest of Christ's story here in front of Pilate. And pray for yourself, the one sitting next to you. The church here and the church at large, that not just today, but every day, we would make much of Christ, and we would see God's majesty on display throughout his text. So pray with me. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to worship freely, not just as it pertains to legality, but also as a freed people. Uh, exactly what that means, that when we come before you, it is not in fear as that who is waiting to be judged, but it is as a son, as a daughter, who's had you lift to see your glory, and so I pray now that our eyes would indeed be lifted, away from ourselves, away from the weights of the weak, but that we would be lifted to see you, our all in all, our only hope, our King, our Father, the cornerstone of our lives, of our faith. I pray this in Christ's name, according to your will and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Read with me verses 1 through 5 here. Verses 1 through 5. This is on the heels of the crowd crying out, Free Barabbas. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail! King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Many commentators say that Jesus was beaten by Pilate because if you remember from last week that Pilate is in somewhat of this predicament where he is ignorant to the proceedings of why Jesus is standing before him. He said to Christ himself last week, what did you do to land you in front of me? You're the king of this people, yet this people has turned you over to me. What did you do? And many commentators believe that Pilate flogged him so that he was not even more so brutally beaten by the soldiers who were on the side here preparing a get up of a king. And Make no mistake about it, the purple robe that they donned him with was not one of elegance or royalty, it was perhaps just a garment that they picked up in an alley and threw on Christ, and that the crown of thorns as it was being formed and was placed on his head. Pilate, a couple times in our text this morning, you will see, present Christ to the people, this being the first instance, maybe hoping that the Jews would see that he was beaten for his crimes, the biggest air quotes possible there, of claiming he is one with God, the Messiah, and maybe hoping that this would be enough for the crowd, that their foolishness would be satisfied. And so he brings Jesus out, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him behold the man Jesus was beaten by Pilate ultimately in Pilate's intent that the Jews may be pacified but there is no pacifying foolishness the Jews were all the more bent to continue to cry out crucify him and mind you as we continue through our text here this morning is not even just the entire crowd but it is the chief priests who lead those cries crucify him. Christ was not only beaten to be brought out in front of the crowd, but also to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, if you would join me there, mark it down for yourself to go back and see later. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Speaking of Christ as our sacrifice, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. I was talking to Kyle about this leading up to this morning, this morning, and just how humbling this text was, especially when we see it contrasted with prophecies such as Isaiah, in which every time we read of Christ's suffering, it points to our healing. And every time we read of Christ's jeering before the crowd and his chastisement, it leads to our peace and reading of Christ's suffering that leads to our salvation. For the Christian, it is perhaps one of the most humbling endeavors we can undergo to not just recount our story, as it were, or our testimony, all the way back to the events that led to us knowing Christ and being saved and turning to him, but all the way back to the purchasing of our souls before Calgary, to see Christ suffer and to see that correlate all the way up to our lives now to understand that it leads to our healing of all suffering, to see Christ preceding death, to see that it leads to our life, to see the crowd hate him, which leads to our peace with God, even if it means being hated by the world. Christ's suffering was not in vain, nor was it to appease a pretend king and Pilate, nor was it to try to just satisfy a crowd of fools. It was to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken of him here in Isaiah 53. Another thing I would beg that we see here in our text is Christ's example of a Savior. Note, and if you could just imagine with me, the invincible patience that he had as he was suffering to have been handed over by his people and by the chief priests that were supposed to know his word and know him as Messiah and be standing before a king that just got into town and doesn't even know what's going on. Doesn't know the law that is being mutilated to lead to Christ's conviction and death and is just there as a figurehead to be beaten, to be flogged, to have his back ripped, his head Bleeding with the crown of thorns. And yet he was patient. He was the perfect lamb being led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. He did not for a second distort the will of his father or seek to step off the path of faithfulness. And why is that? Remember, this is the God-man. At any point before now and now in our text, he could simply open his mouth and it would be done. He could reveal himself to be God and it would be done. Yet why does he not? Love of the Father and love for his children. This is indeed the suffering Savior. Note here also the invincible love of the friend of sinners, as we sang this morning. This phrase used to and still makes me so uncomfortable that I could count Christ as a friend. It makes my skin crawl to know that He would want to be near me. Even though we see all throughout Scripture, He is near to those that society hated. To consider Christ as a friend here, recounting the Father's faithfulness to Him in the midst of suffering, and the Father's promise, mind you, that He would give Christ all that was His in His kingdom. This is not lost on Christ in these moments, and the example that it sets for us is that when we undergo suffering in this life, it does not leave us on an island of hopelessness. Our immediate response should be exactly that. Recount the faithfulness of the Father and His promises to come. He has never failed either. He has never failed either, and we are not... So important or beyond God's promises that He will fail us. If He did not fail Himself and fail His Son, then He will never fail His saints. And it does not matter what that suffering is. It can be the darkest scarlet thread. It can be the deepest plunge thorn in your life. And God will not fail to satisfy you beyond not just this life but unto eternity. We see indeed that Christ's wounds heal our wounds and that the suffering that does leave scars, they are healed by God's love for us. No matter how many times they may be opened by time itself or memories or shame that rears its head, God's grace pulls out every thorn, if not now, then in eternity. Not only did Christ die, we must see here in the text, that He bore the sting of death prior to death itself. This is the greatest suffering a man could go under at that time. And not only a man, but this was the type of death and beating reserved for fools of which the chief priest counted him to claim equality with God. This is not just a common man's death. This is not something that was set aside just for Christ. This was for the fools of the time. It's Christ not only as God incarnate stepping down from his right hand into flesh, dying what society would count a fool's death. He felt every pain. He felt every thorn. I love what R.C. Sproul writes about Christ's manhood and that he was truly man. That means leading up to this now, he felt every weight of temptation that we could ever feel to its fullest extent. And even now, he feels every ping of pain to the fullest extent that we could ever feel. And not only that, but the shame that comes crashing down with that crown of thorns, knowing full well that he is bearing it for sinners. The same sinners, if you will, that would be in the crowd, either standing by or crying out for his crucifixion. This is the humble lamb and perfect sacrifice. And this is lost on us, especially in church culture sometimes, when we just look at the headline details and see that we are sinful, Christ is perfect, and He died. We are sinful. We nailed Christ to that cross with that sin. And His suffering leading up to His death cleanses us, and His death and resurrection stamps us as His children for eternity. It would do our faith, our encouragement, well to press into the things that turn the heads of the time and make us crawl, to see the friend of sinners, to see the spotless lamb marked by our sin. Verses 6 through 11 here. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no Guilt in him. If you remember, this is akin to last week's text on Pilate telling them, I find no guilt. Yet the Jews respond the same way. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Note, again, as the chief priests who break the silence or perhaps the madness in the crowd and cry out the loudest, crucify him, crucify him. Those who guarded the text and spoke of the coming Messiah are now seeking Christ's life because in their words he has made himself the Son of God. They do not know with the lies that they say, they speak truth that Christ was indeed the Son of God and they nor not know that this law that they speak of and yet have butchered, leading to this point, as not something they are following, but a condemnation on themselves. This is a historical account, as I mentioned at the opening, of who we war against. Matthew Henry speaks of this text in saying that the cries of the chief priests and the crowd of crucify him, crucify him, and their zealousness and hate for the Son of God must be matched by our love for God and saying, crown him crown him. We must take note of the chief priests here and be careful of their example of saying, we have a law, this law that they do not follow. And we must be careful of saying, we have a king, a king who we do not follow. We must be careful with our words and our mouths and the creeds that we make with our lives and saying, we love the Lord and do not show it. We must take note of the chief priests who are God's people here who say we have a law and they are bending it to their will. This salvation that is secured for us by Christ is far too precious to be leveraged for selfish gain. And we see all throughout Scripture all the way up to Revelation and Christ's account of His church that those who do indeed leverage it had no salvation at all. Our lives being saved by Christ mean that they are to be lived for Christ. And we have the joy of saying, we have a law. We have a Savior who fulfilled that law, and we live for Him. This is our lives' aim. And no, we will not do this perfectly. We will have seasons of disbelief, of despair. We will have pet sins that we cannot kick to the curb. And we will have our own idols that need toppling time and time again. And this can be something as simple as comfort or the practicality of something that we want that is not yet here. It can be even the scars of this life that may make us curse God at times and not understanding His will for our lives or why things did not go according to our plan Nevertheless, wherever we fall, we must be careful in understanding that we do have a king, and we are to live for him, and he makes every deposit of faith possible for us to do exactly that. It was one of my biggest prayers leading up to this message and for us, and it will be probably for the rest of our church life, however long the Lord may allow us, that we do not mirror the chief priest and saying we have a law and don't follow it. But instead that we would just as loudly as Matthew Henry explained in his commentary, just as loudly say, crown him, crown him with all of our lives. With all of our lives. And how we handle our hope. Yes, and how we handle our hope. Our finances, our time, our schedules, our spouses, our children, the things that are afforded to us as blessings in this life. Is my prayer that in the way in which we handle those things, crown Christ as Lord. And that we do this before the world, who, mind you, is under the same kingship we are, but are acting as fools, saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. We are not to be a silent people. Yes, a meek people who will indeed inherit the world. We are not to be silent when it comes to our Savior. We are not to shy away with our love for the Lord in light of the world who hates Him. We are not to simply let foolishness go on. Wherever Christ has put you, it is to contend for God's goodness. It is to set the minds of fools free. It is to be a son and a daughter, not somebody who snuck into salvation. To be a son and a daughter. Contend for truth, see that Christ is good, and understand that He has put you where He has put you, that you may proclaim, crown Christ our King. Christ's silence here also reveals what the Father has spoken. Uh, if you would, flip quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. This speaks of not just Pilate, but kings of the time who could not comprehend that Christ was indeed the Messiah. This also summarizes here for us Christ's words in verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. There's some difference in understanding of who Christ is speaking of here, whether it be Judas or the high priest Caiaphas, but um, I would wager that it would be Caiaphas as one who knew the law and broke the law. What Christ is saying here is not that Pilate's sin is greater because it is on a grander scale, Uh, or that Caiaphas' sin, rather, is greater than Pilate's because it is on a grander scale, but because it came from one who knew what was right and failed to do it. Pilate here is ignorant of the law. He is a Roman. He is a gavel. And therefore, Christ makes this claim that Caiaphas' sin is greater. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If Pilate truly understood and did not just have an inkling of who Christ was before him, he would not have crucified him. But I must ask you that we not place ourselves in the seat of the author and think, oh, what a better story that would have been. Christ was surely the king of glory if Pilate only knew. If Pilate knew, we would not be saved. If Christ was not crucified, we could not be in right standing before God. If Christ was not wrongly judged, we could not be rightly judged as saints before God through his blood. So friends, if Pilate knew, then we could not know God. And Christ's silence in this moment, again, was not to be a rebel with a cause. It was not to but Pilate. It was to be still and point to all that the Father had already said about him through the miracles he performed, through the voice that came thundering from heaven saying, I am he, he is mine, Christ's word saying, all that the Father has given me, he gives himself. Christ claiming unity with the Father all throughout his ministry. Again, such a perfect example for us in understanding that as we go out into the world, it is in lockstep unity with the Father by way of the Holy Spirit. None of us are rogue. We are not black sheep outside the pen. We are parts of a body combined to point to our Father does not mean we can claim deity as Christ had the opportunity to, nor does it mean we can work the miracles that Christ did, but it does mean that those are just as good for us today as they were then and things that we point to before the world today and things that give us confidence before a world that seems to continue to lose its mind and to answer a fool according to their folly. As we go to our friends and say, do you really think gas prices are going to split the nation? My Savior died for sinners just like you and me. Do you really think this administration or this administration is the answer? Sin still runs rampant, and I know the solution through a saint, through a Savior. Do you see where I'm going with this? Our answers, our hope, go far beyond the circumstances that we see in front of us. We, as the hands and feet of the church, are to be exactly that, the hands and feet of the church, plodding along, casting seeds of hope, and seeing the Lord bless faithful work. If Pilate only knew, Christ would not have been crucified. This also sets the standard for us today that we are to make it known that Christ is what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 speaks of, the Lord of glory. Not just a teacher, not just a miracle worker, our friend, our Savior, and our King of glory. This is the God-man, the risen Son that we worship, And we are to do this in such a way that is infectious in all of life and all of the world. Continue with me here, verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The chief priests here, if you pause for a second or undoing what Christ has said previously in our text from last week, that Christ is saying, what? His kingdom is not of this world. And yet the chief priests press on this nerve of Pilate and say, if you don't kill him, you stand in opposition to Caesar, Pilate's boss, if you would. They put Pilate in a position where he chooses man or God-man. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate here, obviously, is in a state of confusion. Hearing more and more about who this man is that stands before him. Having asked, are you a king? Christ responding, you say that I am a king. Having asked him now, where do you come from? Just getting glimpses of him perhaps being the Messiah. And continuing to find no guilt. And continuing to turn him over, Christ that is, to his people. And the people continuing to say, crucify him. Verse 15 strikes me and the chief priest answering, We have no king but Caesar. Caesar. And a simple statement, denouncing the faith that perhaps they claim their entire lives. Their studies that they had done, all for a moment of power and sin, to appeal to Pilate's senses, perhaps to appeal to the higher authority in their mind that was Caesar at that time, to see Christ crucified. As man stands before God and sides with man, they stand against God. We stand in no neutrality before the God of the universe. This means in our day-to-day where we stand before God amongst man and we choose comfort by siding with man, we are in opposition to our Father. And that does not go without loving discipline. On the other hand, it does indeed mean that when we stand before God amongst man, it is not in sinking sand, it is not on our own understanding, it is not in our own strength. Instead, we are invited to boast in our weaknesses, to lean not on our own understanding, and to stand on the cornerstone of Christ, so that we may always be confident in the message that we carry being the hope for the nations. Note here, the word incarnate, not just the word itself that we carry today, but the word incarnate Christ, draws and delivers away. And this is true here as his ministry, as he went around, drew those who would know him and now hardens the hearts and a point of finality to those who call for his crucifixion, those who claimed to know him, yet he knew them not. The cry here, two times cry of away with him, away with him crucify him perhaps can be mirrored in all areas of our lives as we understand exactly what is happening here that when they are presented this Messiah, the Son of God, their only response in being stuck in their sin is to get it away. Get it away. If you could perhaps recall in your life perhaps when we are stuck in sin and have continued to time and a time and time and time again choose sin. What have we done with the promises of God? Or perhaps brotherly or sisterly encouragements of the hope we have in God? Maybe not out loud, but perhaps in our minds, I don't want to hear that. How does that pertain to how I feel right now? I don't want to think about that. I don't want to press on in hope. Get that away from me. I know I myself am certainly indeed guilty of that when it pertains to hopelessness and You can only ask Abby or brothers who have encouraged me in here and how the truth of God wards off the sin that is still wrapped into our flesh and it does inside it at times and that we say away, away. This leaves us in those lulls of faith or disbelief where we feel stuck and not wanting to move. We feel hopeless, although we're in the presence of hope. We feel lost, although we have the only way to truly live written on our hearts in the law and gospel. And we say, away, away. I don't want that right now. The good news for us this morning is that despite those times in our own lives and despite where we have seen that in one another, Christ is always faithful and never departing from his children. Never. Never. Never, even when we are reading of His truth and we say, away, away, Christ is always there, omnipresent, with us. He's never left our side. He never will. The Spirit is in us, friends. It is with us every step of the way, despite our faithlessness. And it is in those moments that we can instead turn away from ourselves and see the faithfulness of the Lord. So instead of saying, away, away, Just as the crowd does to Christ, we can instead say away, away to our sin when we properly behold the Lord. That when we truly see Him and His goodness and recount His wondrous deeds and the salvation that He has allotted for us, we can see the things of this world and say, get away. Lust, addiction, hopelessness, disbelief. I have a king who reigns now. What am I going to do with hopelessness? Disbelief in ministry, whether it be an invite of a friend, time and time again. Disbelief with yourself, whether it be a truth neglected, time and time again. What benefit do we have from playing to our flesh when we have been freed with salvation? What can we possibly have to do with the niceties and the lusts of the world, with powers and principalities? What can we do with that when we reside with the King of Glory, John Piper writes about this often and that we be careful as Christians to answer foolishness and fools according to their folly. That we instead not make much of the sin that so encamps against us that we can't possibly see over and around it when it is nothing more than a little mound of dirt at the foot of the cross of your king that is covered in his blood and his side pierced. When we stand on Christ, we can, with good conscience and full authority, say, away. Get away from sin. What do we have to do with sin when we're friends of the Savior? Nothing. Nothing. We are invited to be at peace with God. We are invited to free sinners against Christ who say, away, get Christ away. When you go to your friends and your family and you see them say, I don't need that. If that works for you, that's great for you. Live your truth, I have mine. We can stand in the pocket and say, no, you don't. You don't. You don't stand in your truth, you stand before a holy God. What is your defense? What is your hope? What is your reason for living? Are you living? Yet we cannot do this if we do not stand on Christ. And what I'll leave us with is this. As we approach the death of Christ and the coming weeks and verses on that, we see that Christ's death and resurrection cast death away forevermore. Forevermore. Christ on the cross says, Away with the sin of His children. Away with the sting of death away with death's victory, and ushers in the reign of His Father, of what we stand in today. Friends, if you are perhaps missing the thrust of this morning, or the reason for base in some of these points, it, it is this, that no thorn we bear matches the thorns that our Savior wore on His head. No suffering we undergo can possibly compare with that of Christ. No loneliness we feel, no matter how trapped we feel in a stage of life, no matter how much memories of death sting and seek to derail us, or disbelief clings closely, or doubts of God's goodness, or perhaps what he will do through his church, no matter what it is we go through in this life, Christ presses all the more deeper than any thorn can, and he heals with his wounds and saves with his death, and that is the foundation of the Christian life. Amen? That is our reason for living. He is indeed our all in all, not just our all, sometimes, He's not something to just study that we might know just to say, we have a king. And not love him and live for him. If today mean anything in the life of this church, church and perhaps in your life, it would be this. I pray it would be this. To, yes, take stock of the thorns that press and do something with them. Turn them over to Christ and the hope that he provides. See how he has always provided for you. Always provided. And promises to do so up to eternity. See that it is true indeed that the sufferings of this life are nothing but shadows that reveal the glory and the light behind them that awaits us in eternity. That this whole life is a waiting ground of worship for us to prepare us for what we'll do in eternity. And that stand before God, proclaim holy, holy, holy. Crown Him King of Kings. And So I pray that we would make good practice of doing this now before the world, that we would bring lost brothers and sisters with us and in everything, no matter what comes our way as church, as individuals, that we would do that well with one another, that we would always hold one another accountable to hope, to hope to our King and to press on in His promises. Amen. Father, thank you again once more for getting to worship you and to do so according to your will. To read your word, I pray again that we would be shaped by it and changed. And that whatever weight clings closely to us, we would lay aside. And whenever thorn pressed deeply, we would see your grace press all the more deep. That we would be freed from ourselves as we have been freed from sin as your children. And that we would truly worship you. Not just with our mouths, as we say, we have a law, we have a king. But with our hearts as we follow that through with love for you love for your law that you have fulfilled that we can keep your statutes and commandments and be near to you that we can wash our hands of the old man in sin and come to you with clean worship not with calves, not with bulls or even our works but with Christ himself and worship you so I pray now for us that we would worship truly and fully and I pray the same for us as we go out into the week, into this world that we would worship all the more in the midst of those who do not know you and yet are under your kingship. So be with us as your sons and daughters as we press on. Be with us as we fight for hope. Be with your church here, Lord, as we continue to plod faithfully one step at a time. Let us be careful not to take leaps and bounds of shortcuts of sanctification, but that we would make the process enjoyable by seeing your patience for us and suffering that we would follow the same and being patient as we press on toward you, King of Zion. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.